Morning, everyone. My name is Spencer. I get to uh, be a pastor here in this church community. Welcome, particularly if it's one of your first times with us on this uh, beautiful summer day. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, We're doing a little summer series. As Mike just said, we're only here every other week, so it'll be a short series ultimately, but it's called Rest Your Soul. And I want to start with a little story of something uh, that happened to me yesterday that was not at all restful, okay? Uh, We're uh, the Adams family. We're a camping family. I've talked about this before. And this year, you know, we kept buying new camping chairs. The kids were growing fast, so we were buying them bigger camping chairs. And finally this year, I just said, you know what? We're done with this. And I bought a camping couch. So it's three camp chairs put into one. It's the most comfortable thing you've ever sat in. That's due to the fact that it's very low to the ground. So getting up out of it is quite difficult, um, but it's very comfortable. However, because it's three seats in one, it has this nice little carrying case, but it's a little on the heavy side. Yesterday, our old son Dallas had a birthday party at Guelph Lake in the conservation area there. Who's ever like, spent a beach day or camped at Guelph Lake? Okay, okay. Those hands went up slowly, like you were embarrassed about it or something. <laughs> Guelph Lake is lovely. Um, and by the way, if you ever think Guelph is not a very diverse city, go and hang out at Guelph Lake on a Saturday. It's amazing. Like, there's people from all over the world hanging out there. It was great. But we were told the wrong thing when we went in about where this birthday party was. So we parked down at the main beach, at the far side of the main beach. The birthday party was not there. It was on the other side of the conservation area. But I had this great uh, camping couch that's, you know, so convenient and it's lovely. Uh, and Dallas and I were going to have a comfortable spot to sit when we got to the birthday party. It was not so comfortable about 45 minutes into the walk across the park. You know, the sun's blazing. Dallas has given me all of his stuff because uh, he's done carrying things. He's just done generally. Uh, and now I've got this camp couch that weighs three times as much as a regular camp chair. Uh, and so I, and then, of course, when we get to the spot where this birthday party is happening, I sat in the chair for about 30 seconds um, and then carried it back. Uh, this is the way things go sometimes. We carry something that we think is so essential. Uh, we need it. We can't let it go. Uh, and then we realize at a certain point, actually, I would have been much happier if I hadn't been carrying this thing around. And if you know what we're talking about this morning, you can see the connection that I'm trying to make. We're talking about confession, exactly what you'd expect us to talk about on a beautiful summer uh, uh, Sunday morning, right? Uh, but that's the nature of confession, that far too often we carry things around for far too long, thinking, I can't get rid of this thing. Because if I bring this to light, if I do what's required to sort of get rid of it, there's going to be a cost. But what we actually see in the scriptures, uh, and in the life of following Jesus, is that confession brings us rest. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Here's where we're headed. Three things, three questions we're going to answer. What? What is a true biblical picture of confession? Secondly, why? Why does confession matter? Particularly in light of the forgiveness that we believe that we have in Jesus. Why is confession still important? And lastly, how? How do we practice confession? Before we go any further, let me pray and we'll jump in. Jesus, as we were reminded a couple of weeks ago when when, uh, Mike opened the series, you've promised us that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. 
And so we just acknowledge our frailty that we, for some of us who even have been following Jesus for decades and decades, there are still, uh, we still fail, slip up. And sometimes we fail again by carrying those things around. So this morning, would you give us a rich picture of the rest and freedom that confession can bring? Would you just work in us, Holy Spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What? What is a biblical picture of confession? Because I think we far too often oversimplify it and as a result misunderstand confession somewhat. Generally, I think uh, we convey that confession is just basically something we do in our hearts when we realize we've done something wrong. And it goes something like, God, I am sorry that I did that. I promise to do better. I'm sorry I did that. I promise to do better. And if we've done something really awful to someone else, we probably think, you know, I should go and confess to that person and ask for their forgiveness. That's sort of the the limit of confession far too often, I think. So what actually is a gospel-centered, biblical picture of confession? Well, when we look in the scriptures, at least in the New Testament, we get these two Greek words, homologeo and exomologeo, to talk about confession. And really, at its heart, these two words come from this word group that all mean to acknowledge something publicly. I can already hear stomachs sinking, like that I'm going to emphasize this public part of confession. But this can be more than just an acknowledgement of wrong. This can be confessing a whole bunch of things, acknowledging things publicly. Think about, you know, the, the friend that you've gone on countless road trips with, and, and years into your friendship, they finally admit publicly that they hate your singing. Um, that's a confession of sorts, right? Um, and it's one that probably takes a while to get over, right? But that's a public acknowledgement. Think, for example, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this big, broad version or definition of confession can include praise, it can include agreement in sort of a legal sense, and yes, it can include acknowledgement of wrongdoing or sin. But a key aspect of this biblical picture of confession is that it is a public act. Don't get too scared, stay with me. We'll unpack this a bit more. But one example, Acts 19, verse 18. says, Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, publicly acknowledging the sin in their lives. So before we go any further, before we move into the why, while we're still in the what, am I saying that the only true confession is public confession? No. I wouldn't go that far because the scriptures tell us there is one mediator between us and God. That's Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So the good news, friends, the good news is that we do not need to go through anyone to get to God. You can read the Bible for yourself. You don't need me to explain it to you. You can pray to God directly. You don't need to call someone on the phone, you know, get an elder on the phone and say, hey, I need to pray. Can you pray this for me? And you can confess your sins wherever you are. 
whether alone in the car or in the presence of other believers. And God will hear you. And as John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is good news. Amen? One mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. However, however, as with so much else in the Christian life, just because we can do something alone doesn't mean that it is best done alone. Or put differently, thinking of confession specifically, I would suggest that there are certain aspects of the freedom and rest that God wants us to find in confession that we might never experience if we only ever confess alone in our hearts. So, that's a little bit of the what. What is confession? Let's talk about the why. And first, let's think about why confession at all. Leaving aside public confession for a moment, why is confession important at all? Why would we believe it's necessary if we also believe that as followers of Jesus, we are justified by faith alone? And we do believe this. Justified, just to you know, really unpack some theological terms, a warm summer morning. Justified is being declared righteous before God. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin once and for all. When we put our trust in him, on that day, in that moment, our sins are forgiven. And then, as Paul writes to the Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. But, but, we believe that salvation is bigger more beautiful than just our past justification. If you've been in a pilot group with us, the pilot groups are sort of how we uh, have often started uh, missional, new missional communities, and we'll likely be running some of these uh, in the fall. Uh, but if you've ever been a part of these, we've talked about salvation in three parts. That yes, the day you put your trust in Jesus, you were saved from the penalty of your sin. You were justified. But a second sense is that there's a day some point in the future when we will be saved from even the presence of sin. Sin will be no more. And on that day, we will be glorified. The theological term is glorification. But we also believe in a right now sense of our salvation. That day by day, we are being saved from the power of sin over us. The day we put our trust in Jesus, our sins were forgiven. And yet day by day, we are being sanctified. We are being saved from the power of sin. And this is a partnership between you and the Holy Spirit at work in you. So in order to experience God's rescue, we must acknowledge that we, like sheep, have gone astray and are in need of rescue. That was true on the first day of our conversion, and it continues day by day. We continue to acknowledge that we are in need of a Savior. Remember the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And this, friends, is the driving emphasis of James' letter that he writes. He wanted believers to understand that, yes, we are justified by faith alone, but true saving faith in the person of Jesus will always be an active, alive, vibrant faith 
that is brought to bear in real circumstances of everyday life. He asks the question in his letter early on in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And that sort of bumps up against some of us, doesn't it? It it sort of itches at us. James is not talking about earning anything from God. He's talking about a real faith that results in real, changed daily lives. And so on the one hand, it's unsurprising that James encourages us to confess to one another. Let's try and understand what James is saying a little bit better. His encouragement to confess that Naomi read for us, to confess to one another, comes just after talking about physical illness. The encouragement there, James writes, is to invite the elders to come and pray, to anoint anoint you with oil. And as a side note, please do this. If there's an illness that you are struggling with, the elders would love to come and pray with you. And James, in this passage, acknowledges that at times there is a connection between sin in someone's life and physical effects felt in the body. I'm not going to get too deep into this because this would be a whole message in and of itself. But for now, let's just say this. A couple of important things to note. Not all illness is connected to sin. I've seen dear friends be told this and be deeply hurt by it. Someone experiencing a a long-lasting illness and some well-meaning Christian says, well, there's probably some sin that you haven't confessed. That can do damage. However, if you believe that you are experiencing physical effects somehow related to sin you're holding on to in your life, that would be a good thing to bring to light, to confess, bring a brother or sister alongside of you in that. But then he gets to verse 16, which is sort of the crux of the matter for us this morning. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So why is James making this connection? Why does he go from talking about physical illness to then really focusing on confession here? Three things sort of train of thought here. Number one, both physical illness and the sin that we get so easily entangled in are a reflection of our weakness and frailty. Both are a reflection of our weakness and frailty. Second, God desires to draw near to us in our weakness. He desires to draw near to us in our weakness. And third, God delights to use us as ministers of his presence to one another. Let's think about each of these three things just briefly. Why James would be talking about physical illness and then move and focus on confession. Number one, both are a reflection, both sin and illness that we experience in the body are a reflection of our weakness and our frailty. Hebrews 4 this amazing passage that talks about Jesus becoming our perfect high priest. And in order to do that, he clothed himself in humanity to experience what life in this world is like. That includes the limitations, 
the struggles in our physical bodies that we sometimes experience, and it included Jesus experiencing the temptation to sin. We know he was without sin, but he experienced that temptation just like you and I do. Second, God desires to draw near to us in our weakness. Now, you might agree to that if we're talking just about physical illness. God feels compassion. He draws near to us. But the thought that God would draw near to us in our sin is a little harder for us to wrestle with. We know that God is holy and good and perfect. But when we come to him, acknowledging our weakness, our frailty, our sin, I believe he draws near to, near to us then as well. If you want to do a full book's treatment of this, I would encourage you to read Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. In that book, he quotes a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, who says this, For he, as Christ, suffers with us under our infirmities. By infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is turned towards a child that has some loathsome disease. God's heart, friends, is drawn out to us in compassion for our weakness. And thirdly, he delights at times to use us as ministers of his presence to one another. I love John chapter 17. It's like this uh, amazing sort of, it's Jesus talking. It's like this sort of amazing, uh, glorious, like pinball that Jesus, game of pinball that Jesus is describing. Let me just read for you one part of it. You're saying, what on earth are you talking about? Uh, he says, the glory that you have given me, he's praying here in his high priestly prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So whether it be physical illness or a soul struggling under the weight of sin, God draws near to us in our weakness. And he loves to use us as ministers of his presence to one another. Remember we said a few minutes ago, just because something can be done alone doesn't mean that it's best done alone. You know, some of us grew up with families that uh, we sensed that our parents were proud of us, but we didn't often hear that out loud. And there's a difference, isn't there? We can confess wherever we are our sin, bring that to God. But there's something wonderful about bringing that to a brother or sister and hearing, you are so loved by God. Christ's forgiveness covers you. Nothing you can do can separate you from his love. Hearing those words out loud, there's something unique and wonderful about that. Bonhoeffer says in his amazing little book, Life Together, 
It says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. So how do we do this? What does this look like practically? Well, first, for us, as we confess, uh, in his uh, book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster talks about three elements of confession. The first is that we examine ourselves. And I would argue that as followers of Jesus, this isn't something we do alone. We do that with the Holy Spirit. We quiet our hearts. We allow the Spirit to bring to mind what he wants to bring to mind. This is not going through every second of our day and saying, oh, where did I screw up? I know I did some bad stuff today. You know, I either uh, didn't do something I should have or I did do something I shouldn't have done and you go through moment by moment. That's not what we're talking about. Going through uh, uh, what we are talking about is finding a moment of quiet and allowing the Spirit to bring to mind what the Spirit wants to bring to mind. Second thing Second element of confession is sorrow. Again, Foster describes this as having deep regret at having offended the Father. And then the last element is the determination, the decision to avoid sin. And as we've said, we can come to God anytime, anywhere. This is good news. But there's something about public confession. Now, You've heard me use this word public a lot. I hope you don't get the sense that we're now going to pass around the mic, have to stand and share. But why, why, why don't we do this? If, if I'm saying public confession is good for us, why wouldn't we do this? Well, again, Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together, answers this question. He says, I meet the whole congregation in the one brother to whom I confess my sins. In other words, by bringing this to light with a brother or sister, perhaps a DNA, these smaller subsets of missional communities that we have, we are bringing that to the body of Christ, of which we are a part. So who? Who do we bring our confessions to? Because I think we intuitively sense that, sure, okay, sense public confession, you know, confessing to someone might be... Uh, might be helpful for us at times, but we intuitively sense that this isn't just, you know, for anyone, that we don't, at the end of the service, just go and find the closest, warm, breathing person and say, hey, I've got some things I need to confess to you. So who? Those who are clinging to the cross of Christ would be my answer. Those who know themselves to be sinners. Ideally, those whom you know are themselves confessing to others. When we bring our confessions to those who believe that they are not in need of confession, we've entered into some dangerous, tricky territory. Ideally, I would say those with whom you have a trusted spiritual relationship with, like those in your DNA group in a missional community. What about when we're called upon to receive confession, when a brother or sister comes to share something with us. Perhaps you're in that context of a DNA. How do we approach those moments? Well, the first preparation begins before that moment even happens, and that's the encouragement to you to cling to the cross of Christ. You prepare yourself to be a good receiver of a brother or sister's confession by offering up confession yourself. 
Again, Bonhoeffer says this, anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of their own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. When you're in that moment, I would encourage you to largely be quiet. Your primary ministry in that moment is a ministry of presence, of being there with that brother or sister. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this prayer that we want to be praying as a church. God, show me where you're at work and how I can join in it. That would be a good prayer to pray silently in that moment. And then at the end, when you know that that brother or sister has shared what they need to share, I would encourage you to pray out loud. Thanking God that forgiveness is real and covering that brother or sister. Jesus gave us this responsibility, remember. Remember what he said, John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And lastly, the last encouragement, if you are hearing the confession of a brother or sister, is that you go away from that place, and as a mentor of mine uh, said, be silent as the grave. Let them know that you are trustworthy. <laughs> Forgive us if we go away and share that tasty bit of news with someone else. Amen? We are now going to transition to communion. Communion we see often in the scriptures and in the history of the church closely connected to confession. And so here, what, here is what I would encourage us to do this morning. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to come and uh, gather. You're going to take uh, one of these uh, cups, which has both elements in it, and then return to your seat. Up at the front here is going to be uh, our prayer team. If something's been going on in your heart and mind during this time, and you see that there's something that you want to share, to bring to light, with a brother or sister, our prayer team, I would love to pray with you. But wherever you go, whether it's here with the prayer team or back to your seat, I would encourage you to take those three steps. Examination. What aspects of your life is God bringing to mind? Experience the sorrow of your sin in that moment. And then I want you to hear Christ's voice speaking over you as you hold those elements. This is my body broken for you. Nothing can separate you from my love. This is my blood shed for you. Nothing can separate you from my love. And in a few moments, we will take the elements together.